We're in Colossians together. You turn there with me as the kids are leaving. Uh, our series is called The Supremacy and Sufficiency of Christ. The Supremacy and Sufficiency of Christ. Um, our text this morning is in chapter 2, verse 16, through chapter 3, verse 4. Yeah, I don't know what's going on, Mike. Oh, yeah, okay, sorry, I moved it. We both did it at the same time. Go back one if you can. Uh, Bible's in the back. If you did not bring your Bible with you, I'll just assume that you have memorized it all. Um, otherwise, the Bible's in the back. If you don't have a Bible, you don't own a Bible, please take it with you. That's our gift to you. They're in the back. So let me read to you God's authoritative, inspired word in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through chapter 3, verse 4 is where we'll end up. So, ESV, reading from the ESV. Hear the word of God, Colossians chapter 2, 16 through chapter 3, verse 4. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourishes and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. Verse 20, if we, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, asceticism, and severity of the body to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. The Colossian church, maybe 10 years old, somewhere around there. It's a church that was bearing gospel fruit. There was a pastor, we know his lead pastor, or the church pastor. Uh, planting pastor named Epaphras, who was early discipled by the Apostle Paul, went to visit him while in Rome. He was under captivity, under, under house arrest. Made that long trip from Colossae, Asia Minor, to Rome. I think it's a thousand miles, somewhere, somewhere like that. And he told him about the things that were going on in the church and how the community had gathered together in Colossae. God had given birth to this church. And the gathered saints were learning to love God, love each other. They were a witness to the glory and the beauty of Christ. But there were certain teachers false teachers that infiltrated the community there, and they're bringing about just a, a, an overwhelming amount of pressure upon them to say and to, 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 to come to some conclusions like they did that Christ was not enough, that Christ was not enough. Uh, in order to rightly experience God, in order to really know God fully, to, to truly know salvation and redemption, you had to add something to the work of Jesus. He was not supreme. He was not sufficient. And the Apostle Paul has been really clear up to this point, uh, very effective, that Jesus is sufficient. He is all supreme. That's the message that Paul wants to deliver to these church family and, of course, to the false teachers. And he, he said it as strongly as he possibly can. You can just read the text yourself. The sermons are online as well. Uh, and Paul is confronting these false teachers because Paul loves God. And Paul loves the church, the, the blood-bought children of God. And he found it necessary when he hears what's going on in this church with these false teachers that he is going to speak against them. He's going to say something uh, about these teachers who's saying that Jesus isn't supreme, isn't sufficient, and he doesn't want the church to be led astray from the reality or the truth of who Jesus is. Chapter 2, verse 10. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Now, sometimes churches, our church as well, need to step up, stand up, and to speak against those who will infiltrate, infiltrate, 
infiltrate the church with very false doctrine that would lead the church astray. It has to be done. It's important to have a right theology and right understanding of who God is and, and, and what is a proper understanding of the grace and goodness and mercy of God. Right theology will affect all of us. Everyone has a theology. Even if, you don't, if you're here and you don't even believe there is a God, that's your theology. Okay? And Paul says in chapter 2, verse 4, that this right understanding of who Christ is, his sufficiency and his supremacy will keep us from being deceived through false reasoning and his convincing speech. We saw last week that those who are rooted in the lordship of Christ, recognizing his lordship, his deity, his sovereignty, will be, need to be careful not to be captive, taken captive again uh, by worldly philosophy. We saw that last week. It's deceitful. And it really has no ability to awaken us, give us new life, uh, 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 kind of break away or to release us from the bondage of our sinful nature. Because Christ is the only one, chapter 2, verse 9, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in him. And through him, we learned last week, we can experience the fullness of God. We can experience the freedom from the, from the power of our sinful nature. We can have new life. And all that's made possible through our union with the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ is because of the gospel. We learned last week that we have been forgiven of all our trespasses, that on the cross, Jesus canceled the IOU of our sin debt that we accumulated because of our sin. He nailed it to the cross. And we ended last week seeing how the gospel, the cross of Christ, the good news of Jesus, disarmed the enemies of God, the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame. It was Christ's perfect obedience that satisfied God. That, that he, he took the wrath we deserved. He disarmed and shamed the enemies and he gave us victory. We've seen up to this point Paul's attack against the heresy, against the false teaching. And he did so dealing with, we saw, we saw it last week, false philosophy. Which would contradict the gospel. And now this week, Paul turns from philosophy to legalism, false mysticism, and asceticism. Legalism, false mysticism, and asceticism. Our text this morning moves us really from the, from the, from the theology of Paul, chapters 1 and 2. Uh, and then chapter 3, kind of, which we'll look at 1 through 4, kind of is this transitional verse that goes from theology to the work that Paul's going to, to the writing that Paul's going to do in teaching the church about what it means, how to walk, what does it look practically to live out this truth of who Christ is, okay? That's the way Paul writes. He begins in the first few chapters of his writing to lay out what we would call the indicatives, the, the absolutes, the certainties, the declaration, you're in Christ, you died, you rose, all those truths called indicatives. Then Paul moves to the imperatives, the commands. And that's important to understand. Because we don't want to jump right into the commands of God without recognizing who Christ is, all that Christ has done, uh, our security and resting in the grace and the mercy of God. From there we move to what God wants from us. Okay? Everybody go like that. Okay, good. Because that's really important. Okay? Imperatives, excuse me, indicatives, who we are, the certainties, the declarations to the imperatives, the commands, the directives of God. That's the way it works, okay? And we'll see that transition today. So three-point outlines, very simple. What to reject? What do, we, what do we say no to? How to act? And then finally, where to look, okay? Very simple. What to reject, how to act, where to look. That's, that's, our, that's our outline. So first... What to reject. Verse 16 of chapter 2. The Apostle Paul is tying in what he said before to what he's going to say now with a conjunction. We see it all the time. Therefore. Since, since your debt has been nailed to the cross. Verse 14 and 15. Since your debt has been nailed to the cross. Your sins nailed to the cross. You've been forgiven. And the rulers and authorities have been disarmed. Have been put to shame. He got triumphant over them through the cross. Because of that, verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you. Okay? Re reject their judgment. Reject their accusation of disqualification. That's what Paul says. And what's clear from this passage, I read it earlier, there's a form, there was a form of legalism that was being taught. 
It's taught in those days. It's taught today as well. That somehow you can earn, you can work your way into a, a relationship to establish a relationship with God through obeying him. Okay? Somehow to establish a relationship with God through your obedience is religion. The gospel is different, right? So religion is my obedience, my moral and my, my moral work, my moral record brings me right into an established relationship with God. He loves and accepts me because I obey him. That's religion. The gospel is different. God loves and accepts me because of Christ's moral record, his perfect keeping of the law, and therefore, because of the things that Christ has done on my behalf, I obey. I respond in obedience. Very different. One's freedom, the gospel, and one's bondage, legalism. If we think we can earn a somehow what we're doing has established this relationship with God, and now I can keep my relationship established with him through my works, it's called legalism. Even if those things are good. It's by grace alone, through faith alone. And we see in verses 16 through 17 that there were, there were Jewish believers in this congregation and Jewish uh, believers, not, or, or at least false teachers as well, that were trying to introduce and pushing obedience to the law of Moses as a means of being accepted and coming into the, and by, you know, accepted by God and come into God's presence. That there were certain things that you had to do. Before we get into it, I just want to take a really short bunny trail just so we're on the same page. When you talk about the law of Moses, mostly talking about the, the, the five books, when you talk about the law of Moses, the reformers years ago categorized the law of Moses in three categories. It's not perfect, but I think it's very helpful. There were three categories we talk about the law. We just say the law of Moses. What does that mean? There was civil law. There was laws that uh, in a theocracy where God reigned and ruled over the people. There was no government. There was a theocracy. He was the government. Uh, there were civil laws that were given to God's people. You know, if your cow falls in the neighbor's cow, they both fall into a dish. What do you owe? That kind of civil law to try to live together civilly, right? I mean, just, you know, and, and uh, in, a, in a righteous way among each other, God's civil law. Then there was God's moral law. Moral law is, is the uh, really... Uh, the, the expression of God's character doesn't change. Things like don't steal, don't, don't, don't kill, forgive one another. And we say the moral law is summed up what in two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Then there's God's ceremonial law, okay? Special feasts and fasting with elaborate sacrificial system and, and how to walk into the temple, how to, how to get into the presence of God. Every ceremonial law ascribed by Moses was to be obeyed. But we see in the book, uh, in the New Testament, particularly in Hebrews, we've been through that before, that the ceremonial laws and the rituals were types and shadows of the reality and pointing to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We said it all throughout. They all pointed to him. He's the ultimate feast. He's the ultimate sacrifice. He's the ultimate temple. They pointed to Jesus. What these false teachers were doing, they were taking these rituals, these ceremonies, and said they are still needed today for you to enter into the presence of God. And they were judging people in the church uh, judging spiritually what they should eat, what they shouldn't eat, what they should drink, what they shouldn't eat, whether they should go to the Passover a feast, the Pentecost feast, the Feast of Tabernacle, the Feast of Lights, whether you make your sacrifice on the first day of the, uh, of the month, which is the new moon, you see that in the scripture here, and whether you, whether you, uh, you know, subscribe to all the different rules and regulations of the Sabbath day. They said those things, those rituals, those ceremonies are still in place, that Christ is not enough. You gotta follow those things. You gotta keep the days and the diet of the Jewish ceremonial law. And by demanding law, ceremonial law, upon believers then and now, we lose our freedom and we're placed into bondage. Because it's never enough. It was not meant to be. The point of chapter 2, verses 6 through 15, and what really what Paul's been saying about the, 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 the glory and beauty of Christ, that we are to walk on the basis of faith in Christ alone, not some other belief system, that in Christ all the fullness of deity dwelt, that Christ is now the temple of God. He's the full dwelling of God, and we have access to 
God through him. The primary purpose, or much of what the purpose of the Old Testament law was, is to teach us about cleanliness and, and what it means to be unclean and what it means to, to, to come into the presence of God. That's why here in our text says, in food and drink. And he say, look, stop, stop letting people judge you. It doesn't literally mean like, you know, if, if they judge you, you know, knock them out. Like, that. that's not what he's saying. Because you can't stop people from judging you, right? Religious people are going to be religious people. There are people that are just going to see your freedom and want to say something and, uh, and judge you and put you down and just kind of make you look like you're not spiritual. You can't stop them. But what he's saying is you can stop your response to it. Right? You can, don't let them judge you. In other words, don't receive their judgment upon you. Right? Don't be controlled but of things that these legalists are saying. That's hard to do sometimes. But our response is important. And the point is that salvation and spirituality that is based on Christ plus something else is simply legalism, not freedom. Paul is saying, you know, it's interesting. Paul doesn't say, look, the law of Moses is no good. The law of Moses is bad. Don't, don't obey the law of Moses. What he's saying is the law of Moses, the rituals have expired. Verse 17, these things are shadows of the things to come. But the substance, that which it points to, the real reality of what it points to, belongs to who? Christ. The shadows have found their substantial fulfillment in Christ. It's not necessary to follow ceremonial laws. We find that in Hebrews, as I said, chapter 10, verse 1. It says this, for since the law... For since the law, law of Moses, has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it could never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. In other words, it's not having its full effect. Why? Because Jesus, Hebrews tells us, we went through this book together, he's the supreme sacrifice, he's the good sacrifice, he's the better sacrifice. He's the greater sacrifice. The shadow, the Old Testament law, ceremonial, sacrificial law pointed to Christ, who's the better sacrifice. Even eating food of the Old Testament ceremonial laws. Jesus said, Mark chapter 7, do you not see that whatever goes into a person without, from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach, and it then is expelled? And Mark says, thus he declared all foods clean. Okay, Paul is simply saying that God never intended these laws to be permanent. They were a shadow of things to come. They were to teach us things like cleanliness and uncleanliness, teach us things about the horrible reality of our sin, teach us the things that would separate us from, from the worldliness that God would have a people to himself. Laws like that would teach us how a sinful people can approach a holy God. All those things had their place and were fulfilled in the work and person of Jesus. Okay? Kent Hughes. The dietary rules, Old Testament dietary rules, sanitized people, God's people, to purity. In other words, woke them up to the reality of purity. The great feast taught various aspects of the work of Christ. And the Sabbath day displayed something of the rest into which he leads his people. But they were shadows, the real thing has come in Christ, end quote, okay? So legalism maintains this. Listen, our security, our, our hold to Christ is in part on our obedience. Our obedience is some man-made laws. Uh, legalists love to make their own laws. Even the law of God can become a legalistic way to approach God. Galatians speaks all about that. We're not under the law. In other words, we're not trying to work our way into acceptance with God. You can't. That's the point. So going to church, great things. Reading your Bible, wonderful. Giving of your time, giving of your, your money, good things, necessary things. But not if they're necessary to keep us in relationship with God. They'll never work. Good things but not necessary things that keep us connected to Christ. I went from the prodigal son, some of you know my testimony, I, I share it, it doesn't matter, from eating in the pig pen 
waking up one day thinking, how did I end up here? And then when I got saved, guess what? I became the elder brother. Looking down on others who weren't reading their Bible as much as me. That can happen. Don't think it can't. You don't know as much as I know. You're not doing devotions like I do. That's a very, very, very dangerous place to be. God had to smack me upside the head in a pig pen, and then God had to smack me upside the head as a legalist. Been on both sides. Very, very careful. All right, so he says, look, reject judgment against the things that are shadows. Christ has come. He's fulfilled the ceremonial laws of diet and days. But also, look what he says, reject anyone who, are, who would try to disqualify you. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, going into details about visions puffed up uh, without reason by his sensuous mind. The word disqualifying is, is an interesting word. It's only used once here. It means to judge like an umpire, to disqualify for the prize, to declare you unworthy. Why? Through asceticism and worship of angels. That's what was happening. Asceticism is, and we'll get into more in a little bit, asceticism is where we get our word humility. Paul used it here in a negative term in a sense of self-abasement, um, false humility, self-denial. Look at uh, verse 23. He connects the same word, the noun form, into the severity of the body. Chapter 2, verse 23. Self-made religion, asceticism, connected to a severity of the body. It was, just, it was this abasement. It was this way in which I need to, to, to harm myself almost so that I can become spiritual. Now, what's interesting here, too, he said not only asceticism, but the worship of angels somehow... Folks felt like if we worship with angels, we're more spiritual. Two ways to interpret that passage. Some commentators think they were actually worshiping angels. Um, I, don't know if I, I don't know if I think that way. A lot of commentators say that there were those who were worshiping with angels. You could take it both ways. I think when you're looking at the spirituality of this asceticism, like this self-abasement, this self-humility, uh, uh, they were saying, look, we're, we're, we're along with these angelic beings worshiping a God. You have this extra special kind of spiritual uh, encounter with the spiritual beings. That's how wonderful we are. I think that's what he's saying. Like, who wouldn't want to worship with angels? Man, you worship with angels? Yeah, I do. It's amazing. You know? It's like... You know, or, or it could be, maybe, maybe they're, they're maybe looking at angels, do some mediation. I mean, the Roman Catholic Church, they're still doing that today. to look at the dead saints and stuff to mediate for them. It's all idolatry. But, but that happens. So through these, some sort of ascetic practices, the self-denial, their mind and the spirit were caught up to these spiritual realities. It became evident. Look what it says. They were going into detail about their visions, puffed up, prideful, without reason, by their sensuous mind, their carnal minds, their fleshly minds, things that they made up themselves. Right? People don't know whether it's just the Jewish folks, the Gentile folks, but somehow, some way, these people were teaching there's a deeper experience to have with God through, through, through the denial of the body and this, this mysticism worship of angels. And what happens? Look what it says. Verse 19. Really, it's disconnecting you. You're not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a, a growth that is from God. I, I can't help but think, uh, some of you folks have seen this, some of those prophets of today and some of the visions they see. I know I shouldn't laugh. It's funny. I mean, if you've ever seen something like saw, uh, um, Sid Roth, Anybody know of Sid Roth? What a crazy lunatic show that is. I watch it just for entertainment. I, was, I fell into this tramp, a trance and the moon opened up and these worms came out. It was like, really, tell us more. I'm like, what? he's a lunatic. Get some help for that person. Like, are you kidding? It's puffed up. Visions that they've seen. Absolutely crazy stuff. There's no, like, can we look in the Bible and see if there's anything about worms coming out of a moon? Anything, you know? None of that. Just crazy stuff, man. Anyway, 
Hendrickson writes this, the church need not and must not look for any other source of strength to overcome sin or to increase in knowledge, virtue, and joy. Just as the human body, when properly supported and held together by joints and ligaments, experiences normal growth, so also the church, when each of its members supports and maintains loving contact with each other's will, under the sustaining care of God, proceed from grace to grace, from glory to glory, end quote. Jesus is what? The head of the body of the church. He's the beginning of the firstborn from the dead. In him, everything, he might be preeminent. Chapter one. Chapter two, and you've been filled in Christ, who is what? The head of all rule and authority. Stay connected to the head, have vitality and union and, 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 and power comes from Christ. Not this puffed up, made up visions of, the, of these people who want to call themselves wonderful. I'm, I, look how great I am. Paul is tenacious as he continues to remind us over and over again of the total supremacy and sufficiency of Christ and total dependency upon him. We're not going to grow. We're not going to grow into the fullness of Christ with human philosophy, legalism, asceticism, some sort of self-denial, or some mysticism, meaning we're transcending to the spiritual place without Christ. There is a certain mysticism where we talk about faith in Christ, walking that walk of faith. That's not what they're talking about here. There's that, you know, the people who are spiritual. That's what he's talking about. So reject all that. All right, so what are we supposed to do? Listen, we're rejecting the fact that the law, the ceremonial law is still intact today. It's going to somehow connect me to God. We're going to reject the fact that you want to judge me unworthy because of this non-asceticism approach. It's actually disconnecting me, so I'm not going there. So I, I reject all that. And Paul says, if, if, if no one's judging you, if you're not going to let anybody disqualify you, why are you acting this way? Why are you acting in the way of that those things actually matter then? They don't. Verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive, do you submit? That's the word dogma. You obey its rules. Why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. That's a good question. Again, I, I think it's not just Jewish restriction of the law. I think there's some paganism in this as well. I mean, the problem obviously was, was legalism to the Jewish law, but I believe, and, and most commentators do too, some don't, but most believe that it was pagan practices, that was asceticism and other things that were coming into the church, that were affecting the church. Remember, Colossae was, in many ways, a lot of Gentile folks. Lightfoot is a commentary. I think he's right when he says, some of these prohibitions were doubtless reenactments of the Mosaic law, while others would be exaggerations or addictions of a rigorous asceticism, something you find in the Essenes, he says. Avoid oil, wine, and fish, all these things, uh, he said, the shunning of contact with strangers and religious inferiors and the like, end quote. In other words, there was a teaching that was going on from the Essenes that you would... You would you, kind of desecrate, kind of hurt your, yourself and beat yourself into submission so that you can experience God. And Paul says, look, the law won't do it, the ordinances of Moses, and surely man-made instructions regarding the elemental spirits of the world, the regulations, do not touch, do not taste, uh, uh, and do not handle is not going to work. It's not going to be helpful. That's what he's saying. Some commentators, and I think they're right, talking not only about food here, because you talk about touch and taste, uh, and do not handle it, there's, there's a food element to it, but there's also, there was this thinking within the asceticism community that sexual intimacy was also wrong, and a person would become ritually impure if they revolved themselves, even husband and wife. They would just say, abstain from these things, abstain, they would abstain from this, it would, all kinds of things they would abstain trying to overcome their, their sinful natures and try to really reach this euphoric spirituality through the abstinence of things, all kinds of things. Uh, I, I read this week, initiation into mysterious religions, magical rituals, uh, rituals uh, and mystical visions. So in other words, they, they were relying on this spiritual stuff. They don't even know what they're relying on, really demons and, 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 and uh, spirits of the world. And they were saying, listen, that's the people you have to connect to. 
And Paul says what? Paul says, what have we believers, what has happened to us and the world? Between us and the world. What has happened? We've died to the world. Isn't that what he's been saying? We're dead to the world. Chapter 2, verse 13, you're dead in your trespasses. God made you alive. We're dead to those things. Galatians 6, 14. I'll boast in the cross and the cross only by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In other words, why am I getting caught up in this foolish prohibition that has to do with worldly things? When they have no value at all in my relationship, in my growth, in my union with Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, eat whatever sold in the meat market without raising any questions. For the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. Verse 31 of chapter 10 of Corinthians, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all what? For the glory of God. The false teachers then, false teachers today, whether it's an experience you have or don't have, or something you should do or not do, what they're doing is they're promoting the lie of the ages. Christ is not enough. It's Christ plus works. Every system, philosophy, religious systems in the world today is you have to get saved by doing something. Belief in Jesus, Christianity is the only belief system in the world where it's a system of grace alone. Do you understand that? And the only way to counterfeit grace alone is through what? Works. That's the counterfeit. But we've died to Christ. We've died to the regulations. We died to the elemental spirits of the world, the demonic powers that would promote and to teach and to try to get us in bondage to human asceticism, abstaining from this, abstaining from that, in order to somehow merit the grace of God. Living in isolation. They would, they would do all kinds of things. You heard of the monks. We're going to talk about one in a moment. He, he, they, they would put themselves... In, in, in a place with no one else thinking they're not going to have any lust. What's the problem with that? His mind went with him. Right? Self-mutilation, mortifying the flesh. But no, he said, look, we've died to those things. They have no power of, over us. We're to reckon our lives dead to sin, alive to Christ, full of joy, uh, of God's creative beauty and life that he gives us. Right? Don't get caught up. We're dead to those things. Look what else he says about the worldly things. Number two, the commandments of abstinence, asceticism, are focused on things that are temporal. Temporal in substance and value. Look at verse 22. He says, if Christ, you died to elemental spirits, don't, don't ask those questions. You're already dead to them. And then verse 22, he says, I'm referring to these things, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, that all perish as they are what? Used. They're temporal. They don't hold value. Then he says, not only that, but they are inferior and impotent according to the human precepts and teaching. They're not according to Christ. They have no power, they have no value. They're inferior. There's nothing greater than the value and the purpose and the work of Jesus. That's what he's saying. They're, they're, they're temporal in value. They're inferior and impotent. Look what he says last. They're worthless and ineffective. Verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. They look great. Appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, asceticism, and severity, sever, yeah, severity in the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Know what he's saying? They're ineffective. They don't work. Rules and regulation does not, guess what, change the heart. We talked about that a few weeks ago. It has no ability to change your affections and overcome sinful desires. It's not from what happens out, it's from what happens within. Paul says to the Colossians, don't get back into slavery. Don't let them, don't let them rob you of the joy of the freedoms you have. Now, church... We know as believers who know our New Testament, we went through this in 1 Corinthians, that there are times where our freedoms need to be what? Put aside. That we, that we don't boast in our freedoms when we are what? With a weaker brother, a weaker sister. When we know that our freedoms will cause them, we see that in Corinthians and Romans, that our freedoms will cause them to fall into sin or things they are struggling with. We need to be careful that our freedoms don't cause a brother or a sister to fall. I think we need to be careful 
that we don't cause our freedoms to hurt our witness for those who are seeking Christ. But we don't stop our freedom for legalists and false teachers. That's a whole nother story. There's nothing you can do for them. Okay? Christ is enough. That's the point. Christ is enough. And this asceticism, I'll just let, me, let me just nail this down if I can. I, I read this this week uh, in MacArthur's uh, commentary. He said this about ascetic, the ascetic practices that we've been talking about. He says this, they believe that the body was evil. The paganist ascetics, the community of asceticism, went to extremes. Some early fathers, in a fit of asceticism, castrated themselves as an act of self-denial, seeking by such rites to attain holiness. Stupid, he says. Typical MacArthur. Touch not, taste not, handle not. That's not spiritual. No more oil, no more wine, no more meat, no contact with a stranger, no touching a religious inferior. Simple diet, simple clothing necessary for spirituality. It's the only way to be spiritual, end quote. Stupid, he says. We'll never take control and have victory over our sinful impulses and desires by being fanatically religious, trying to do so without Christ. We're just being fooled if we think we can. It has to be a heart issue. It's a heart issue. There's a man once named Martin Luther, Augustinian monk, studied God's word, studied the law, recognized in the scriptures that he was a sinner deserving God's wrath. That persistence of the reality of the righteousness of God, the wrath of God, plagued Luther, and he was overwhelmed with a great sense of guilt. One theologian, Anthony Hokema, described the mental anguish that led to Luther's freedom to see the truth of Scripture this way, and I'll quote it. Martin Luther had tried everything, sleeping on hard floors, going without food, even climbing a staircase in Rome on his hands and knees but to no avail. That's asceticism. His teachers at the monastery told him that he was doing enough. He was doing enough to have peace of soul, but he had no peace. His sense of sin was so deep, especially as he continued to study the Psalms. They often mentioned the righteousness of God, but this term bothered him. Martin Luther used to say that he hated God because of that. He says he thought it meant God's punitive righteousness whereby he punishes sinners. And Luther knew that he was a sinner. So when he saw the word righteousness in the Bible, he saw red, end quote. Luther would read verses like verse one, chapter 1, verse 18 of Romans, the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all the unrighteousness of God. And he felt the guilt of God and tried to do everything he could to remove the guilt from his life. Until one day when he read the verse before it. And he realized the righteousness of God is not the punitive justice that leads to punishing sinners. It is rather a righteousness of God that is given to sinners imputed to them on behalf of Christ's righteousness. And is to be received by faith alone. And Luther's heart just soared. No longer did he have no peace in his soul. No longer was he working, 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 working to try to uh, get the righteousness of God through self-abasement, good works. He realized it was the spotless, perfect righteousness imputed to him by faith in Christ. Paul is saying here, saved by grace, was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone for the glory of God, and he's standing on Scripture alone. And the answer then to legalism for us and for them is, to, is the continual apprehension of the grace of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The answer to mysticism, a deep understanding of our union and our fullness of Christ. And the answer to asceticism, it's just reckoning us dead to sin, alive to Christ. That's how we are to act. So where are we to look? Let's end here in chapter 3. Paul is saying, if you want to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, chapter 1, verse 10, work, 
bearing fruit in every good work. If you, want to, if you receive Christ Jesus as Lord of all, supreme and sufficient, rooted and built up in him, chapter 2, verse 6. Don't get caught up in delusional and, and plausible logical reasoning that takes you away from the Christ and the word of God and the gospel. Don't be captive by empty, deceitful human uh, uh, philosophy. Don't be allowed to, to have people judge you or disqualify you. No, don't do that. Your sins have been nailed to the cross. You are dead and you're alive with Christ. Therefore, chapter 3, verse 1, if then, same word, therefore, seek and set your minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth. We go from the, uh, the, the, the uh, indicative, all that Christ is, through chapter 2, into the imperative, it is imperative, present, Greek present, active imperative. In other words, keep on seeking, ongoing for believers to seek and continually seek after the things above. Verse 2, seek your minds on things above. Again, ongoing, seeking, looking, worshiping, setting your minds on things above. Why? Because the old earth has dead to us. We are alive in Christ. The world is dead. We are raised with Christ. We're a new creation in Christ. We're looking for our redemption, our restoration, a renewal of a new world when Christ will reign and rule. That's what rule. That's what chapter three, verse one is all about. You've been raised with Christ. He rose from the dead. You are now with Him. So let me let me just mention three things quickly. And I've taken this, borrowed it from a man by the name of Doctor Daniel Akins. He's a great preacher, but he he gave he he wrote it he outlined it three ways. I'm going to give it to you. It's his. I'm borrowing it. Oh, well. Number one, we need a redirection of our pursuits. Redirects. Christ redirects our pursuit. Look at verse one. He talks about our new life, emphasizing our new status. You see the word seek in verse one? Seek the things. That word literally means desires. What he's saying is continue to seek your new desire, your new affection. Seek after those things, the beauty and glory of Christ. It's in contrast to the false teacher who was seeking their own beauty, their own glory, their, their, their self-made, puffed-up, sensuous mind. Don't do that. Seek the things that are above. How do we do that? How do we, how do we redirect our pursuits? How? By looking up, by looking to Christ, keeping your eyes and your heart on Christ. Not on earthly things, we did to those things, but on Christ, who is what? Seated See what it says there? He's seated at the right hand of God. You know what that means? If, it means that he is sharing the authority and the rule and the reign and the sovereignty of God himself. He's seated at the right hand of God. Jewish people would pick that up right away. Only God sits in heaven. He says Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. You know what else that means? You remember from Hebrews? What does it mean? He sits next to the Father. It's finished. Sacrifice accepted. All the priests, the uh, Hebrews tells us, chapter 7, chapter 9, the priests every day would sacrifice. There was no place for them to sit because they were continually sacrificing. But Jesus offered himself once and for all. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. For all time, a single sacrifice for sins. Therefore, he sits down at the right hand of God. Jesus Christ pays the full atonement and sacrifice given for man and for the penalty of our sins, absorbs the wrath we deserve, and you what? Sits. He's the only one that can sit. Sacrifice completed. And now the beauty and the glory of that gospel redirects our pursuits, our hearts, our affections as we think about his grace, as we're captivated by our union with him, as we seek our, and, and pursue the things of, of God, as we see the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is in his sovereignty, who Jesus in, is in our, in the sacrifice that he has done for us. The incalculable worth of Christ redirects our pursuits. Next thing it does, it reshapes our perspective. Look at verse 2. Our, perspect, uh, our perspective change. Set your minds on things above, not on the things of this earth. We've got to set our minds. Transforming impact of the gospel, reshaping our life and renewing what? Our minds. That's what Roman teaches us. Uh, we're, we're, we're pondering and we're wandering and uh, uh, just the wonder of the beauty of Christ. Spending time with his word. You ever hear the old saying, we're, 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 let me see, I wrote it down. Um, we're so heavenly minded that we're, no, we're of no earthly good. That's not what Paul is saying. That's the opposite. Okay? 
We are to see everything in this world in light of and against the backdrop of eternity. That's what he's saying. We will we'll no longer live and think as if the world matters. We will understand and be conformed by the transforming and the renewing of our minds. Not escapism, but realism. C.S. Lewis, it does not mean that we are to leave the present world as, as it is. If you, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. Aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you get neither. It seems a strange rule, but something like it can be seen in the work and all that matters, end quote. Do, do our minds regularly go to Christ? Are we being renewed in his word? Are we setting our minds on the grace and the beauty and the goodness of Christ? Is he our ultimate treasure? Are we trying to escape the world? Or are we trying to focus on Christ as we live faithfully here in the world? What are the things that are important to Christ? Ask that question. What does he love? What are he desires? How, how can I fulfill his will in my life? He shapes our perspective. Lastly, he redefines our purposes. Verse 3. For you have died... Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. I want you to notice something. If you write in your Bibles, this is the time to mark it up. Look what he says. He goes from the past, the present, to the future. He brings the past. You died. Past. Takes us to the present. Your life is now hidden with him. And then the future. You also will appear with him. See what he's saying? You've died in the past, your, your life now is living uh, and, and through the abiding presence of the Spirit, you're living in the promises of Christ now and your hope, what, is the promise of his return. That's what he's saying. And when he returns in all his glory, look what it says. We will appear with him in glory. What does that mean? It means everything that's broken about us, everything that distorts us, all the evil, all that sin that twists us will be removed. We'll be removed. We'll be transformed and we will be perfected in him when he returns. But meanwhile, what do we do? We wait. We wait and we witness. You see, family, listen. The, 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 the purpose of Christ's imminent return in the life of us today should not only cause us to live holy lives or walk in sanctification and righteousness, but also should propel us in the urgency of sharing the gospel, of witnessing the good news of Christ, not just to sit back and anticipate and celebrate life in him, although we need to do that, but his return is intended to, to, to not just sit back and, and wonder, but it's, it, it is to propel us to live as citizens of heaven, strengthen us with hope to live in, in gospel urgency. Set your minds on things above. Seek desire to things above. Christ is going to come back. Meanwhile, listen, you're dead to him, dead to the world, alive to him, waiting on his blessed hope of return. False teachers, and I'll use this word, wicked prosperity gospel teachers, okay, will tell you get all you can now of this earth. In fact, the more you have, whether it's a, a, a $50 billion jet, I just could not say no. Some of you saw that video. <laughs> the more you have, the more God is blessing you. You know what? The truth is, the more you grow in maturity and the fullness of Christ and understanding of the gospel, the less the world's goods becomes your pursuit. The more you're letting go. Not my home. Dead to the world, alive in Christ, seeking and pursuing the beauty and glory of Christ, who is, the, who is the gospel, who's seated at the right hand. My mind is being renewed on things above. I'm learning and growing, sitting at the feet of Jesus, worshiping Jesus. He's all I need. He's all supreme. He's all sufficient. My life is dead to the world, alive in him. And then when Christ comes, who is my life, he is all my life. He is my all and everything. He is my greatest treasure. When that happens, you'll appear with him in glory. The band can come up, and I want to tell you a story about a man named Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor had a burden for China. His biographers tell us that he lived so much in the presence of Jesus Christ that he began to feel the great heartbeat of Jesus for lost souls. 
His biographers who wrote about his life said that he, he found the self-satisfying hymn-singing congregation back in Britain, England, intolerable. He would look around the pews and see these prosperous, bearded merchants, shopkeepers, uh, visitors, uh, these women with bonnets and children, he says, scrub children trained to hide their impatience, and the atmosphere just made him sick. He seized his hat, left, and he said, unable to bear the sight of a congregation of a thousand or more Christians, people rejoicing in their own security while millions were perishing for lack of knowledge. I wandered out on the sands alone in a great spiritual agony. Hudson Taylor spent so much time in the Word and in the presence of Jesus, loving Jesus, worshiping Jesus, that the burdens of Jesus became his burden. His heart was filled with the heart of Jesus. And so he left the world and dwelt with the Savior and then came back to what? The pursuit of the lost. See how that works? It's not to disengage. It's to say, no, 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 no. I love the things Jesus loves. And guess what? Jesus loves people. So I'm going to love people. We love people. Let's stand together. you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Father, we thank you for the marvelous truth of the work and the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior. And Father, we pray as we spend time with you, we spend time in your word, we spend time with our Savior, you would give us his heart, that we would see the loss and the hurting and the broken around us, and we would respond not to gain anything, but because we have gained eternity in Christ free gift of grace has been bestowed upon us by faith so God help us as a church to love you and to love others and to be quick to show our love for you with generosity and good deeds but also Lord in the declaration of who Jesus is supreme all satisfying Lord of all be with us as now we respond in Jesus name Amen.